0: continue today Sorry, um, in this series called The Family Tree. If you've not been with us during this series, if you're new with us at City Church, you might not know what the whole family tree thing is about. And what we're doing is we're looking at dynamics that exist in all of our families to some extent or another and asking, where did those dynamics come from? And they're usually influenced by one of two trees. And the first tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was in Genesis that Adam and Eve ate from that brought sin into this world. Or they're influenced by the tree of Jesus, the tree upon which he hung the cross. That's what the New Testament refers to it as several times the, the cross is referred to as the tree. And so we're looking at these two trees and asking which one is most influencing our immediate family tree. How does the tree of Jesus influence our families? And so the dynamic that we're going to look at today is one that I think we all deal with, we all feel, we all interact with on a regular basis. And I found a a gem of a story that perfectly illustrates it in Twitter, the most wonderful place on earth. Um, and so I, I will share with you, and I got to let you know, the first time that, that my wife, she came upon this story and read it to me, I thought there's no, this is fake news. This is a made-up story that someone did to like poke fun at somebody else. But like Snopes.com has nothing about it. Like Best I can tell, this is a real original story that someone recorded for the internet to be blessed with. So there's a woman who, who records this a few weeks ago. She says, here is hopefully a short synopsis of something that happened this week that I still don't understand. While I was in office space near a client, a young woman was meeting with her boss. She was, by my estimation, in her late 20s. The boss, also a woman, was giving her feedback and reviewing edits she had made on something this young woman wrote. They'd been speaking in low tones, but their volume got louder toward the end of the conversation because the young woman was getting agitated about a particular edit." That particular edit was correcting the spelling of hamster, with a P in the middle of it, to hamster, without a P, the correct way to spell it. Apparently, she had used the phrase, like spinning in a hamster wheel, in this draft of a presumably speech or op-ed. The young woman kept saying, I don't know why you corrected that, because I spell it with a P in it. The boss said calmly, but that's not how the word is spelled. There is no P in hamster. The young woman said, but you don't know that. I learned to spell it with a P in it, so that's how I spell it. The boss, remaining very calm and professional, said, let's go to dictionary.com and look it up together. Mind you, this is a woman in her late 20s, not a fifth grader. The young woman insists she doesn't need to look it up because it's fine to spell it with a P because that's how she wanted to spell it. The boss says, let's look over the rest of the piece so I can explain the rest of my edits. They do, and I can see the young woman is fighting back tears. The boss is calm, cool, and handles this with professionalism and empathy. Boss says, I know edits can be difficult to go over sometimes, especially when you're working on new kinds of things as you grow in your career, but it's a necessary process and makes us all better at what we do. Boss gets up from the table and goes to her office, and the young woman can barely hold it together. She moves to another table in the common workspace area, drops all of her stuff loudly on the tabletop, and starts texting. A minute later, her phone rings. It was her mom. She had texted her mom to call her because it was urgent, and I'm sure her mother thought maybe she was in the ER or something. She then puts her mom on speakerphone in the workplace. She bursts into tears and wants her mom to call her boss and tell her not to be mean about telling her how to spell words like hamster. The mother tells her that her boss is an idiot, and she doesn't have to listen to her, and she should go to the boss's boss to file a complaint about not allowing creativity in her writing. Yeah, the young woman kept saying... I thought what I wrote was perfect, and she just made all these changes and then had the nerve to tell me I was spelling words wrong when I know they're right because that's how I've always spelled them. She then went on, still on speakerphone, to tell her mom in very great and office-inappropriate detail about how hungover she was and what she and her friends did with some guys the night before. Mom laughed and laughed. The colleagues in and around the workplace kept looking at one another, and some even put earbuds, headphones in and on. It appeared as though this was a regular thing with her. She ended the conversation asking her mom how she should bring this up with the boss's boss. I mean, I always spell hamster with a P. She has no right to criticize me. She walked into the office kitchen for the rest of the call, so I don't know what happened next. Wow, right? And as, as ridiculous as that story is, some of you are thinking, like, I know exactly that story. We did that story this week in our family, and What's happening in this story? What's happening is the dynamic that we're going to talk about today, and that's overprotection. Right? Because, let's, let's be clear. I mean, in that story, subjectivism is on full display. This idea that, like, my truth is my truth, and it doesn't have to be synonymous with your truth. There is no objective standard that we're all on. Obviously, millennials try to ruin everything every day. Like... Millennials just wake up and ask, what can we destroy today? Um, Clearly, those are at work here. But the reality is, this story, we didn't get here overnight. There was a long road that brought this young woman to the place where she needs to be able to spell a word the way that she wants to, regardless of what the dictionary says. It is a symptom of the dynamic of overprotective parenting. And overprotection is, it's a hard thing to talk about. It's a hard thing to to look at clearly because it's something that we all battle. I got to tell you, I mean, I'm in the middle of it. Right now, we've got a three and a five-year-old. And and every day, I'm aware of all the ways that that their lives are fragile and delicate, and they are ignorant and helpless. And, And it's my job to to help steer them through this. And so, so it's hard to talk about. And, and when we look at it in stories like that, what we do when we look at overprotection and take it at face value is we see that, that this creates snowflakes, right? That this creates children who grow up into children in adult bodies. That when I was in student ministry, I, I would talk about sometimes watching the wussification of America happening. Um, and that's sort of, that's sort of how we, we want to look at overprotective parenting, that it is just creating frail, weak children. But that's not really the problem of overprotection, right? We recognize it, we see its effects, but a lot of us haven't thought what is the true problem of overprotection, And the real problem with overprotective parenting is not that it is its own shade tree that has grown to to create weak and lazy people in our families. Overprotection is not the tree. Overprotection is a fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what it does is it undermines the very character of God, his truth, and our identities as his children, and it masquerades as love in the process. That's a pretty sinister thing to say, (laughs) right? We wouldn't ever accuse ourselves of undermining the very character and truth of God, of undermining our own identities as children of God, and putting a happy face on it, but I think that's what overprotection is. We're going to look at four types of overprotective parents, and each one of them actually comes from a misunderstanding of God's grace and what the role of a parent is. And so as we go through this, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that we've been looking at in the letter to the Romans. It's the book of Romans in your Bible. It's towards the front of the New Testament. And, and you can get there in your Bible, whether you've got a paper copy, a digital one. Um, we're going to put words up on the screen, but, but you're more than welcome to go there in your Bible um, and follow along as we go through this. Romans chapter 5, what, what Paul, the apostle Paul who wrote this letter is describing is the grace of God and one of the most profound and radical and foundational concepts of our Christian faith. And that is that we are justified by faith, not by works. That we cannot offer a performance that earns righteousness or forgiveness from God. Rather, God gives us faith and gives us grace, allows us to be justified by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he's going through what this idea looks like, what we are to find because of the grace of Jesus. And the ideas that are in Romans chapter 5 are in complete opposition to the ideas that undergird overprotective parenting. And I know that seems crazy, and if you read through it yourself, you would say overprotective parenting is nowhere in there. And I don't believe that this chapter, nor any of the Bible, is a parenting manual written as direct instructions necessarily for every situation. We're not getting it out to follow a recipe, but rather it does speak to the ideas of the kingdom of God and what life in God's love and his character look like. And they speak to every facet of our lives. Overprotective parenting is not excluded. You see, this is a battle of ideas that we're going to talk about today. And, and these ideas that some of us have bought into are contrary to the gospel of Jesus. And those ideas, they play themselves out in all sorts of painful ways in our families. They actually prevent us and our families from living in and experiencing the grace of God. So what does this look like? Okay, like I said, we've got four types of overprotective parents that have got fun names and, and maybe the idea that, that undergirds each of them. First one we're going to look at are police parents. And police parents, they, they believe, this is the thought that guides them, I can save my children through rules. Right? This is the parent that has a rule for absolutely everything. Right? And then let me be clear, I'm not against rules. I'm not against discipline. Right? This is not a, a seminar on free-range parenting. We, we have lots of rules in our house, and every day with all the rules, it is still a miracle that the place doesn't burn down. Um, if, if our three-year-old was allowed to do whatever she wanted, life would not be good right? So, so rules and discipline are essential. But this overprotective parenting that comes through police parenting says that if we could just create all the right rules, then our kids would be perfect and they would not have to experience pain. Because we know what kids are capable of if they're left to their own devices. We know what we did as younger people, the mistakes that we made, the pain that we felt. And so if we can just make all the right rules, we can experience or we can prevent them from experiencing pain at the result of their own actions, the actions of the people around them or the environments that they find themselves in. We can teach them to be morally good. We can spare them from pain and, and, and then they'll thank us later at some point. Right? Again, there, there's nothing wrong with discipline or boundaries, Fortnite will destroy your son's brain if he plays it all day long. If you didn't laugh, you've not experienced Fortnite and what it does to an adolescent boy. Um, it, It is not good for us to not have boundaries. But when we have a rule for absolutely everything, when we are so concerned with making sure that everybody is within the lines all the time, we find ourselves using the law to do what the law could never do. That's what Paul said. He's continuing. He says, therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 5. And anytime you see therefore and you're studying the Bible, you ask, what's it there for? And so you go back and you look, and there is a constant thread throughout the entire letter to the church of Rome. And he's talking about the law of Judaism and the ways that they try to live perfectly measuring up to the law or to the rules of what their religion says. And he makes it clear, you can't do it. Every single one of us has fallen short of the law. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. 328, for we, remain, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Over and over, Paul is stressing, if it is up to you to perfectly keep the commands of God, you are going to fail. And so then the question is for parents, why do we think that it will be any different with our kids? Why do we think that rules are going to save them. If we can just make all the right rules, then obviously they'll follow them. But really, a lot of times, what that creates are kids who know all the rules. And maybe they'll follow all the rules, but their hearts are not changed. Because the reality is only grace can make us want to follow the law. There is no law that can change our hearts And so we end up living without grace, because without grace, God is a controlling, oppressive parent that we can't ever please, a parent with standards that we will never meet, and a child who grows up in a home where there are an overabundance of rules meant to protect them, they will find themselves trying to please an oppressive, controlling standard that they can never measure up to. Right? We think that, that we can create rules that will shelter our children from harm, but we actually reinforce that life is all about their performance. See, what our children have to learn is that the same thing that we have to learn. We can't follow all the rules, and the rules aren't what save us. It is the grace of God that saves us. Our children have to learn that they cannot be saved by rules, that they're saved by grace, and that when they break the rules, there is grace waiting for them. Because when we break the rules, God has grace waiting for us. Second type of overprotective parent, bubble wrap parents. Right? These are the parents that believe I can save my children through safety. Okay? And, and I, I, this is touchy. Um, I'll be clear. I think it's good to wear seatbelts. I think it's really important to put sunscreen on our kids. I think it is super important to to want our children to not get squashed by a bug by walking out into the street. That's not what I'm talking about. Safety is good. Helmets are good on bicycles. But at some point, we can become obsessed with safety, right? We begin to feel that our job as parents is to insulate our children from every accident they might encounter. And it's easiest to think about with little kids, but we do this with our older kids too. Right? We want to anticipate every little thing that might come up and get them. We want to buy them a third car after they've wrecked the first two. <laughs> we want to save them from any harm that they might come into, and we've got to make sure that they have everything they need to be completely safe. Right? And common sense is good, but at some point, safety actually becomes God. And being overly obsessed with safety and, and preventing all accidental harm, it actually comes from the idea that our identity is found in our kids. right? Our worth as parents is found in keeping them safe. These are my kids that God has given me, and it is on me to make sure that nothing bad happens to them. right? It's also fueled by an idea that God is not actually sovereign over everything. God is not in control. God is not overseeing my lives. God is not involved in our day-to-day affairs. I am sovereign over the lives of my children, and it is my responsibility to be involved in every single thing and make sure that nothing happens to them. There's a really sinister idea underneath it that says God cannot sustain us through anything. There are actually plenty of things that God can't get us through. And so it is on me to make sure that we never find ourselves in a place that God could not walk with us. Not only is that harmful for us because it's undergirded by a spirit of fear, It teaches our children that fear is what drives our lives. Fear is our primary motivator for making sure that we do things a certain way. We learn that God is not capable of walking through every circumstance with us. There are times when God and our faith in him is not enough to see us through what is happening. God cannot be trusted with everything. And the primary thing that we should pursue in this life is safety. Except we can't keep our kids safe. Right? Five one. Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch it? Therefore, since we have kept our children safe, we have peace with God no. Keeping our children safe is not the source of our peace. The only way to have peace in life is to trust that God has done everything we need to inherit eternal life with him. And the practical reality is that we can check every box, we can cover every base. We can do everything a blog post tells us we're supposed to do. And none of it guarantees the safety of our children. There is absolutely nothing that guarantees our children will be safe. What God does guarantee is that he will never leave us or forsake us. That he is present in the midst of everything. And that his grace is sufficient for all circumstances. And so we cannot live guided by fear that God is not capable of sustaining us through anything. Third type of parent, lawnmower parents. I did not make this one up. Helicopter parenting, that is so 2005. Um, we, We have moved, we've moved on. We are now lawnmower parents, right? This is, I can save my children through comfort. And a lawnmower parent is going to mow over any obstacle that their child might have in their life. Right, And so he forgot his water bottle at school. And so I will spend an hour and a half in my car to make sure that he gets the water bottle instead of having to drink the oppressive tap water that comes out of the fountain on the wall. Um, <laughs> right? It's going to kill us. We, we can't drink fluoride in our water. Um, we <laughs> the idea that, that, yes, I spent all of my money on fast food and Starbucks... But now I need to buy this thing for school, and I'll get a bad grade if I don't, so yeah, I'll just put some money in the account and make sure that you don't have to suffer the consequences of your actions. I don't have gas to get me to work because I did whatever, and so I'll just make sure that there's always enough money to cover whatever it is. The idea of a lawnmower parent says that pain, discomfort, and suffering, those are the opposite of God's design, so let's just eliminate all of those things from their lives so that they can experience what God wanted for humanity. Right, So no matter what it is, we are going to fight all of their battles for them. We are going to attack the umpire that called them out. We're going to call the teacher to make sure that, that the A is given on the paper because you have no idea what it would do to my daughter if she got a B. And, and we're going to make sure that our children never experience pain. There's a problem with this, though. <laughs> Paul goes on in verses 3 and 4 and he says, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. The problem comes when our children experience suffering and disappointment. And if we have not equipped them to experience pain, What's going to happen to them when they do experience it? Paul is clear, not just here, all throughout the New Testament. Paul, Peter, John, anyone that is writing makes it very clear that pain, suffering is a part of the deal. Don't, don't like hope that you go most of your time without it. Just expect that it's going to come your way. We live in a broken and fallen world. Pain and suffering will visit us. Jesus says that if you're his disciple, you can count on it. And actually, you're supposed to count yourself as blessed when you experience it, because that's exactly what they did to the prophets that came before him. So, what happens when our children suffer? What happens when our children suffer for Jesus? Right? If we want them to follow Jesus, and Jesus says you're going to experience suffering, if we have made their entire lives about the avoidance of suffering, what is going to happen when they encounter it? Here's maybe a scarier, harder question. Do we want our children to have a faith that is so real and significant that they might suffer for it? This world is in pain and is longing for restoration. And it is a restoration that we are supposed to experience in Jesus. And the world cannot be pointed towards that restoration if we don't model it. By protecting our children from all discomfort, we're preventing them from experiencing the grace of God that is able to bring about perseverance, character, and hope. This is not saying make sure your children are miserable. Misery is not a blessing in life. But learning to suffer well, learning to experience discomfort and bring glory to God because Jesus has done everything that is necessary for us on our behalf. Regardless of our circumstance, we can praise Him. Last type of parent, at least for today, (laughs) trophy parents. Trophy parents believe I can save myself through my children. Right? A trophy parent's identity is found in their kids. A trophy parent believes my kids are a reflection of me. I live through my kids. I make sure they get all the good grades and they make every team because those things reflect really well on me. Right? Our identity is found in our performance as parents. Our value as parents is found in the performance of our kids. And so I will call the teacher and make sure that my child gets an A, but it's not even out of the benefit of my child. It's really because I want a child who gets all A's. Because that says really good things about me. Nobody actually says this, of course. (laughs) And it's really sneaky, and these get muddled together. But underneath this style of parenting, this idea that I I want to get every bit of glory I possibly can from the performance of my children, or I will do anything to, to cover up the brokenness of my children so that it doesn't reflect poorly on me, is from this idea that I am justifying my own salvation through some performance. Right. If I can be a good enough parent, then God and everybody else will think I'm awesome. If my kids can measure up to a certain standard, that will say something about me. If my kids are holy, that means I'm holy. Who I am is dependent on what my children do. That's completely opposite of the gospel of Jesus. Paul says in verse 5, right, that hope that comes about from character, perseverance that suffering brings on, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope does not put us to shame. Hope actually eliminates shame. The, The grace of Jesus eliminates shame. And so there is no action that our kids or anybody else could do that defines who we are. There is no amount of brokenness that can be present in the people around us or in us that becomes our identity. That's what shame is, right? Guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, I am bad. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. And there is something fundamentally wrong with us. It's called sin. Yet, God has removed sin and shame. And so there is no blemish that anybody can put on you because of their actions. And so we do not have to parent in a way that is afraid of what our children's lives or actions may or may not say about us. That's important. We can want good things for our kids, but our primary motivator doesn't have to be making sure that our kids are the right reflection of us, because the only reflection that matters is what Jesus has done. And when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' reflection on us. The problem with every single one of these parents, these parenting styles, is not that it makes weak kids. It does, but that's not the biggest problem. The problem is it doesn't allow our kids to experience the grace of Jesus in their lives. It doesn't allow us to experience the grace of Jesus in our lives, right? We have told ourselves that the ultimate goal as parents, the ultimate picture of perfection as parents, the best job you can do in parenting is to make sure that your kids never feel like they need Jesus, Right. If we can just help them know how to never break the rules, how to never find themselves in a circumstance where they are broken and hurt and need help beyond themselves or what is readily available to them through us, if we can make sure that that they never have to experience pain or discomfort and long for rescue from something they can't provide themselves and that there's a way for them to perform in such a way by their own actions or the actions of others that they can be fulfilled... Why would they ever need Jesus? I don't know that that's the best dream we could have for our kids. I know that's not the best dream that I could have for my life. That is an exhausting way to live, and it never brings about joy. It never brings about fulfillment. It never brings about peace. See, our role as parents is shaped by the gospel. What does Paul say is maybe a better way to look at life? Verses six through eight, he says, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. No matter how good our performance is, it will never be good enough. Yet God didn't die for people who had performed well enough. God died for sinners. God died for broken people like you and me. Our role as parents is not to be God for our children. Our role as parents is to point our children to God. We don't follow all the rules perfectly. We are not all powerful. We cannot perfectly navigate every situation in life. We cannot find fulfillment in ourselves. Maybe you can. and Come talk to me afterwards, and I'll learn how to do life from you. But we cannot do everything perfectly, and neither will our children. And so they do not need to learn how to be God from us. They need to learn how to trust the grace of God in everything, regardless of their performance. Our role is to point them towards Jesus, to show them what a life redeemed by the cross looks like. Show them what it means to make mistakes and fail and rest in God's grace, because we know that when we repent, he forgives us and he always takes us back. To show them how rules and discipline fit into the heart of God, not just to be rules to follow, how, how rules and discipline lead to a thriving life in the kingdom of God with his values. Show them how following God doesn't eliminate danger or pain, but rather we find that Jesus is a source of strength that will see us through absolutely anything we could face. Show them that daily we have to trust him with our own lives, with their lives, And pursue his will. Show them that our identity and security is found in absolutely nothing but the performance of Jesus on our behalf. The painful reality of parenting is that we are not equipped for the job. Right? And that may be really contrary to what the internet might want to say. That that God has given you these kids and, and you have everything that you need to perfectly parent them. you on your own do not have what you need. You, every day, though, with the grace of God, can find everything you need. There is no performance you can give that will ever be good enough. And they will never give a performance that will be good enough. And so rather than teach them to follow some performance that will never satisfy... Teach them what it looks like to desperately need Jesus every single day. To cover up our inadequacies. To cover up our fears. To cover up our shame. To cover every bit of brokenness we might experience. To walk through suffering and pain with us. Because the only thing that we really, really need is to be reconciled with God and he has done Everything necessary for that. That's terrifying and it's scary and it's hard. And our lives don't change just because we recognize this, right? We can't just know it as an intellectual fact. Baseball is still a reality in our world, even if we know that we don't have to measure up to performance. The goal is not to get out of baseball. The goal is to walk into baseball, trusting the grace of Jesus for everything. And so maybe this week, this starts, a change starts with daily surrendering, whatever it is, whatever type of overprotective parenting, whatever type of brokenness you have in your family, let's surrender that to Jesus. Let's stop looking at it through the lens that I can save my children through blank. I can't save my children at all. But rather, I want my children to be saved by Jesus. And so how do we point to Jesus with every part of our lives? How do we point to the one who died for us while we were still sinners? The one who has grace for everything. The one who stops asking us to measure up. To a standard. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to acknowledge today that we are not perfect. Jesus, we are not equipped to do the job of our role, whether that is parenting young kids, old kids, caring for aging parents, caring for a spouse. Through a hard season, Jesus, we are not equipped for the role that we have found ourselves in. The only way we can do this is with your grace. Jesus, the only way our families will ever experience true life is with your grace. Jesus, we are not all powerful. We can't save our children from harm, but you are faithful. And you'll see us through every circumstance, giving us peace. Jesus, help us to trust you with our families. Help us to lead our families to trust you in every circumstance. Just no amount of rules can ever save us. Jesus, may the rules that we have point towards your love and grace. Jesus, help us to love you And our neighbors, help us to give and experience grace when we fall outside of any standard. Jesus, may our lives always point to the cross, and may the cross change every part of us. We pray this in your name. Amen.